funny how? It'd be funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. to another episode of the Silver Screen video. This is Jonathan. Uh, my co-host, Jacob, decided to join me today. I guess it worked out for his schedule to uh, to show up. So, Jacob, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not uh, sure if that was too much passive aggressiveness. So. I mean, you know, it was, it was, I will say this, passive, you're using that in the loosest sense of the term. Um <laughs> Uh, look, folks, I wasn't able to be here for this uh, delightful interview um, slash conversation. And, uh, you know, John is trying to make me feel bad about it, but I won't. I won't do it. I won't feel bad. You know, I had uh, some life shit going on, which, to be honest, I don't even remember why I had to cancel. But <laughs> Oh, I remember exactly what was going on oh. and why you had to cancel. All right. Um, you were stuck on the subway. Y'all's like your your subway literally broke down. Oh, that's right. I was stuck on the train. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But but here's the thing. I'm not even referencing the fact. I was going to get to that. This is why I'm having abandonment issues. I'm not even referencing the fact that you weren't here for the episode for our guest, our great guest this week, by the way, which we'll get to in a moment. Uh, you missed the intro last week as well. So right, 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 right. Dominoes are falling, my friend. I think um, you know. This is say. my uh, this is my exit strategy. I'm just gonna you know keep missing episodes until finally I just exit completely. You know, we're basically gonna turn into like the thing where it's like, oh, dad just left for milk, but on the podcast it's gonna be like, no, guys, Jacob will be back next week. Don't worry about it. And then, like, after a couple episodes, I'm like, no, he's out this time, but he will be back. So <laughs> I, I, he told me he's coming back. Um, and then you'll you'll hear anyway. me. You'll hear me on uh, like another movie podcast and just uh, just break down crying at what could have been, you know. <laughs> well, now that we've aired our dirty laundry, guys, uh, we have a fantastic guest this week, a director, a writer. Sam Thompson. I had a fun time talking with Sam. I will admit it on air as I've already admitted off air. Uh, Jacob is the guy who conducts this train with, uh, with guest. So not having him there, uh, was difficult. So, but, uh, I was able to, to pull it together enough to hopefully give Sam a, uh, a fun conversation. He certainly, uh, was fun to talk to. We talked about a few different movies that has influenced his work, so uh, I really enjoyed it, and uh, but I, I will say your 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 presence was uh, your lack of being there. I should lack of presence was noted. I did uh, I did miss that. So, well, you know, I'm the I kind of run this I kind of run this podcast. You know, I'm uh, you know it's hey look you know when you uh, when sixty five percent of the podcast is gone, you know, I mean. You got a lot to deal with, you know, and I feel bad for you, but hey, I'm just glad you could pull through and, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, I haven't listened to this episode yet. Um, probably not going to listen. Got a lot of other things to do, uh, but I'm glad it went out. You know, I'm glad you did your best and uh, who knows, hopefully we won't lose too many listeners, you know. This is one of those times where I wish that we were doing a video podcast so people could see the look on my face the entire time you were talking. Um <laughs> 
This is what happens, folks. When I give him a compliment, it just goes straight to his head. Um, <laughs> but anyway, in all seriousness, uh, you were missed for this episode. Um, I, it is a great episode. I really enjoyed talking to Sam. It was a fun conversation. Uh, I'll put his information in the show notes, uh, his Vimeo channel. I loved his shorts. We get into that in this episode as well. Um, so anyway, yeah. So guys, we hope you enjoy it. Um, Jacob, if they want to hear more witty conversation that actually involves both of us, where should they go? Oh, folks, I've got the, I got good news for you. You want more of this? Patreon.com slash silver screen video. Uh, we got a couple of things up there going on. We have a Godzilla series that we're taking a little bit of a hiatus from uh, to focus on some more recent releases. Um, because if I watch another Godzilla movie, uh, I'm going to blow my fucking brains out. Uh, also, well, <laughs> parody, folks. <laughs> That's a joke. Don't call the suicide hotline for me. Also, we've got uh, silver small screen video, which is where we're going through Mad Men episode by episode. Uh, folks, Mad Men is available free on Amazon. Go watch it. Listen to us along with it. Enrich your viewing of the show. It's time. It's time for you to rewatch Mad Men or watch it for the first time. Uh, so, yeah, if you're interested in any of that, check out patreon.com slash silver screen video. I will say how great would it have been if you had given the Patreon to your other podcast that you've been missing this podcast to do. <laughs> um, so uh, patreon.com slash gold screen video. Uh, anyway, folks, uh, yeah, that Mad Men series has been a hell of a lot of fun. It's, uh, my first time doing a full rewatch, so it has been a blast so far. We are just getting into season two, so you have not missed much. So be sure to check that out. We've got a few different tiers and, uh, we got a nice community over there. So come on and check it out because, uh, we always want and welcome more. So Jacob, do you have anything to add before we get to our guest? Uh, I don't. It's you know. I just want to say it's nice to be appreciated. Other than that, I have nothing else to add. I do. I do appreciate you much to my um, like. I don't know. Like I hate to say it. I don't know what word best describes it. M- I don't much have, to your like, chagrin. Like, yeah, I started to say chagrin, but that doesn't fit either because I do have this like maliciousness towards you. <laughs> um, <laughs> Anyway, guys, uh, yeah, we hope you enjoy Sam Thompson. It was uh, it was a fun conversation. Glad he could be on. And uh, yeah, so we'll get to that. Thanks for stopping by the Silver Screen video. We'll see you next week. Ladies and gentlemen, this week at the Silver Screen video, we are happy to have writer director sam thompson sam welcome to the show thanks for coming on yeah thanks for having me it's good to be here yeah and guys typically for our longtime listeners you know that uh normally jacob does these introductions and uh and he is here but unfortunately there was some circumstances that came up and he cannot join us so we're doing solo today but it's still going to be a great time and uh, happy to have sam here um, Sam, I figured we could talk about your career a little bit and, um, and just kind of go from there. I, I saw you on Twitter and went to your Vimeo channel and really enjoys your shorts. And, uh, I was happy when you responded and said you wanted to come on. Uh, can you talk about your career a little bit? Like, did you, 
did you always want to be a writer director or did you lean one way or the other and just kind of talk about that for a bit? Sure. Yeah. So I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, who I was, what I wanted to be. I was a blank slate until I was about 18 or 19 when I went away to college at West Virginia University. And I was a journalism major. I'd always loved telling stories. I'd always had a, a vivid imagination, but never really thought about filmmaking or writing as a career. And one day walking through the halls of the journalism school, I just passed by a poster for the school's film club. And, you know, in true blank slate fashion, I completely uh, procrastinated going to that first meeting. But once I finally went to a meeting, I, you know, they were looking to make a short film. They didn't have any ideas yet. And I had one kicking around in my mind. So I just naively pitched them an idea and they liked it. And they said, go write it. And I had never written anything like that before. So I feverishly, you know, Googled how to write a screenplay and all like the typical really green things that when you first try to, to learn how to do something, you hit the Google search as many times as you can. And so oh, yeah. I, wrote, yeah, I took a stab at a couple of drafts and I ended up rewriting it a little bit, but we went out and we shot it and I got to act in it. And being a part of that process for me was the most eye-opening experience in my life because those two days where we filmed, they just flew by. And we were shooting for about 16 hours a day for those two days. And it felt like nothing. We finished and I had felt more rewarded. I had felt more fulfilled than after anything I'd ever done in my life up until that point. And so from that moment on, I became addicted to it. And I just, I couldn't stop. Now, have you been like up until that point, like before the the the, the blank slate and getting into and finding this um, artistic outlet? Were you much of a cinephile growing up or did you casually watch movies? Like what, what was, what did you do in terms of movies before, before you found out you wanted to be a writer director? Yeah. So I love that question. I, you know what? I liked movies, but I, I definitely wouldn't call myself a cinephile. And I know that that's definitely one of those things where most people in the industry are. And it's, and I'm always going to kind of have that like inferiority complex almost because it feels like there's so much out there to watch. There are so many good movies. There are so many good TV shows. I would have to be watching 24 seven to just try and make up for lost time because I didn't watch a ton when I was growing up. I didn't watch a ton before I went to college, but there was something that whenever I would go into a blockbuster when I was younger, I found myself in the horror section, reading the backs of every horror movie I could get my hands on. And I didn't even really like horror at the time. It just scared me. And these would always give me nightmares. And every time we went to Blockbuster, my mom would tell me, why do you do this to yourself? You're going to give yourself nightmares. But I kept doing it anyway. And I guess that's probably the earliest part of my life I can look back on and say, okay, yeah, it kind of makes sense why I started writing horror. But I, I had this weird attraction to things that scared me when I was younger. And that's kind of stuck with me to this day. Man, there's something about being scared. I don't know, like, I don't know why we love it as a society, but I mean, we'll go see as, as a society when obviously when theaters were still a thing and hopefully will be a thing again. Um, you know, we would go see movies like The Strangers about home invaders who kill people for no reason. And normally you shouldn't want to watch that. But I mean, I love that movie. And there's just, there's something to be said about being afraid. And like, I remember same here as a kid, uh, you know, watching like the original Halloween and it would just scare the shit out of me. And it'd just be like, why am I doing this to myself? And then just watch it again. Yeah. Um, there's just, there's something to be said about that. So is horror your favorite uh, genre, I'm to assume? Absolutely. And it's it's hard to really pinpoint a specific reason why, but I guess if I had to look for one, it would probably be 
it really, it always makes me feel something, even like the, the worst. And, and I don't want to say worst because there really aren't any bad movies. That's a, probably a dip thing, a debate for a different day, but horror movies, I just, even, even the ones that aren't critically acclaimed, they always get your pulse pounding. The jump scares or the atmosphere, the score, it just always gets your blood pumping. It gets your, your heart rate up and it really just forces you to become an active watcher, even if you don't want to be. Well, I have to ask, uh, in, in October, we did like a whole big thing for Halloween and, and we did a director episode. I picked, uh, James Wan. I'm a huge James oh. Wan fan. Yeah. Um, are you a fan of his, like with his conjuring movies and the insidious, uh, films and all that, like the original saw film, like, do you like those movies? I, I do. And I, he's actually one of my favorite horror directors because I feel like every movie he does, the camera is like this omnipotent, like audience perspective almost where we're just, we, you know, it, it's not, it feels like all of his camera moves and his directing, it's not, be, you know, stuck on a tripod. It's not, you know, just one dolly worker or anything like that. It's, it feels like it's always this ghost or this ambivalent, you know, audience type of perspective floating throughout the movie, following the characters. And it's a feeling that I've just, I, I get watching his movies that I don't get watching a lot of other movies. Yeah, man, with, with the conjuring, especially, cause I'm a big fan of saw. I feel like that kind of introduced a whole new uh, genre for lack of a better term i believe most people refer to it as like torture porn yeah. um <laughs> I, I do believe he kind of uh somewhat godfathered us into this new era of these types of films and then he shows how different he can be by making a a haunted house film with the conjuring and uh i'm a big fan of the way he moves the camera the way he maneuvers you in that house the bedroom scenes everything about it it becomes a character opposed to yeah i'm just watching this these kid these kids and these this family react to these horror elements and it doesn't feel forced either and that's the thing for me that i i've sparked to the most about his directing a lot of times especially with horror movies especially with directors who aren't typically you know known as horror directors who don't work in that space very often it feels like there's a tendency to try and take you know a specific story and smash it into some kind of style or, or combine it with some kind of visual style that's flashy, but it just doesn't work with the kind of story that you're trying to tell. And with James Wan, it just feels like his style of directing is just such a perfect match for every movie he's ever directed. And that that's one of those things that you don't really notice until you notice that it doesn't work, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, uh, unfortunately, you know, there are a lot more things that don't work that you notice in your typical horror movie today um, simply because there's such a go-to genre for most, for most studios, micro budget horror films, good or bad, pretty much dominate the scene today. Yeah. Now, before we jump into the three main features that we, that you kind of wanted to talk about uh, includes, including one real banger that I think, you know, yeah. is one of the greatest movies ever made. Um, Let's talk about your shorts for a minute, because uh, with with a uh, one called Toast, we were yeah. kind of talking about it off pod. It's fucking hilarious, man. And um, and you kind of touched on uh, basically the story behind it a little bit off pod. But if you don't mind revisiting that a little bit and uh, guys, also the link will be in the show notes. But go check out Sam's Vimeo channel because you you will not be disappointed. Uh, it's it's funny. Um, I really Can you talk about that for a little bit? Oh, no problem, man. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, you know, that, that was, it was a funny one. It was, it, it was around Halloween. Uh, my producing partner and I were, we were just coming off a short that we won our first award for, and we were, we were riding a high and we were like, you know what? 
it's almost Halloween soon. We should do a Halloween short, kind of capture this momentum. And so we both just kind of got stoned together and thought of some ideas. We watched a couple Edgar Wright movies and in typical, you know, typical college fashion, we just looked at those and said, we need to make something like that. So we went out and, you know, had some food, made a sandwich. We just kind of looked at the bread and said, is, you know, can we, can we do something with this? <laughs> we, we tried to think of the most ridiculous thing ever. That is the most non-threatening thing that you can possibly imagine. And we landed on bread and that eventually turned into toast. And it was a really funny kind of experience that came together really quickly. And we just wanted it to be weird. I think that was the first project of my career that I ever looked at and went, I don't care anymore what people have to say about whether they like my work or not, or that they think it's objectively good or not. This is just something I think that I would have a lot of fun in. I love Edgar Wright. This would be ridiculous. I feel like I'm a ridiculous person already anyway. So we just took a stab at it and we had a ton of fun um, in the pre-production leading up to it. We had a ton of fun on set making it. And to this day, it's still my most successful film. And at times, I take a step back and think to myself, like, am I really going to be the, the toast guy? And almost reflexively, you know, my subconscious tells me, of course you are. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. We, we talked a little bit off pot as well about like untethering ourselves from other yeah. people's expectations. And um, I think that's huge, man, for an artist. I know it's difficult. And and as you pointed out off pod, like it's it's almost impossible to completely untether yourself but if you can just get to that sweet spot to where you kind of have that freedom to be like i hope that people like this and respond well but i really like right now i don't care because i'm in the moment and i love it and it's fun and like this is the product i'm happy with and i think that's so important as 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 an artist absolutely and what's funny too is that when, when you untether yourself and you're able to kind of sit back and not care anymore about um, what people's reactions are going to be or whether or not they're going to like it. You just put the most unfiltered version of yourself on the page or on the screen. It kind of comes across as confidence almost. And when you think of confidence, you know, that kind of stuff draws people in, whether it's a comedy, an action movie or a horror movie. If you're going to do something, do it confidently. And I feel like the the biggest thing that hinders people from really just allowing themselves to do what it is they want to do without other people's expectations weighing them down it's just it, like, it's one of those indescribable things where I don't know how I was able to do it. I wish that I, I knew how, so I could kind of break it down, but I just, I kind of stopped caring. And that to me was probably the single biggest thing that helped me uh, jump over a plateau that I feel like I reached at a certain point in my writing. Well, I mean, I'll tell you that the short really feels confident. It feels really loose. Like you guys were just having fun. Um, I, I love the, the scene at the table when when you kind of like get a feel for the the way you use music was really good too as well especially towards the end um but when you see the toaster in the corner it kind of i don't know how other viewers felt but it set me up for like later on especially when they hear the noise and she gets out of bed it set me up to just kept be i kept expecting the toaster to be like on the ceiling or like <laughs> Be somewhere just complete because that to me, it's the best kind of nonsense, like a toaster, like just stalking these people. It like it really doesn't get better than that, like type of fun ridiculousness. And that's why I really loved it, because it was just uh, it was so off the wall. You know, I, I am here cracking the hell up right now because I feel like that is infinitely funnier than what we ultimately ended up doing. <laughs> 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 well, it's just, I, I loved it because I wasn't sure if your intent was to set up the viewer to like, cause, cause you know, everybody like as funny as like 
horror comedy like, you know, going back to Edgar Wright, I'm a big fan of Shaun of the Dead. Um, as fun as those are, like, there's always nice to have this little bit of like a horror element. That's why I loved it because I was kind of like, oh shit, like, when is it? It's so crazy to think that about a toaster, but it's like, when is it going to show up again? Um, but yeah, man, um, let's, uh, let's switch a little bit to leave, which is a little more of a serious project, but I also feel like it, it obviously falls into what I would consider like a real life horror. Um, and if you don't mind uh, talking a little bit about your inspiration for that, because that one was a lot more intense and obviously can touch a little more, you know, on real life horror opposed to the fantastical elements. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's a great point, too. I, I don't know that I've ever really had anyone else outside of like my own personal sphere who kind of helped work uh, on that project with me call it a you know, personal horror, but it it essentially is. And so I come from a family where that's, you know, that behavior that's depicted in that short was kind of what I was presented with, uh, you know, growing up in a family that was that had some dysfunction, that had some physical violence. It's it's one of those things that when you live through, you don't really realize just how traumatic it is, how traumatic it can be, and how deeply it influences every aspect of who you are to your core as a person. And I just felt like that's something that isn't really talked about a lot. And I'm a really big proponent of talking about things that just feel either taboo or like we shouldn't talk about them. And for me, domestic violence is one of those things where it's very pervasive, especially in America. And it's one of those things that everyone seems to understand happens, but no one ever really seems to talk about. And it feels like one of those topics that's just so sensitive and maybe no one wants to say the wrong thing. Maybe no one wants to do the wrong thing. But I feel like that's just as reductive as throwing out hot takes that really don't help anyone or anything. And so I just really wanted to set out and make a movie that just kind of show the perspective of somebody who is in that situation and present, you know, people who watch it with a couple of perspectives. Like, well, maybe this is why someone has to live through this. Maybe this is why, you know, and I also think that it kind of shows that you never really know what someone is going through. Um, the character of the friend, uh, you know, in, in that short, I, I like to even think of her as almost the main character because she doesn't know the extent of of her friend's relationship. She doesn't know all of the ins and outs. All she knows is whatever her friend presents her with, um, you know, physically or otherwise. And I think that for me, that was an exercise in perspective. And I just feel like you never really know what anyone is going through until they decide to tell you. And you never really know what's going on in anybody's life unless they're willing to open up. And, And all you ever see from anybody is what they're willing to show you. No, absolutely. And I think that's an important distinction to make because I feel like sometimes uh, in in our society, I feel like we forget that everyone has their own story and their own personal things that they're dealing with. I think it's an easy thing to forget that probably all of us are guilty of at times. Um, But when you look at, when you look at this, I agree with you a hundred percent. I feel like certain topics like domestic violence, uh, obviously with the, with the issues we've been having, um, in the world today, in our country, especially with, with racism issues and things like that. I feel like nobody really wants to tackle it. Either they don't feel comfortable or maybe they, they just don't know if they can do it tastefully. But I feel like this short really hits the beats that it needs to hit in a short amount of time. Um, you kind of touch on everything. You touch on both stories, especially with the friend, like you said, possibly you could make the case that she's the main character. It kind of shifts focus a bit. Um, but everything really touched on it. I, th- I thought the end was especially um, 
you know, well done. Cause it is just like, we have to remember that you can't just escape these situations with ease. Like it's easy to look on the outside and say, Oh, well I would do this or I would do that. But yeah. the way you hit on it was really well done. And like, yeah, I would, I would definitely recommend people check this out as well because you know, it may not be something that makes everyone comfortable, but I feel like it's necessary. And uh, I thought you handled it really well. I really appreciate that. And, and honestly, the goal with it was just to kind of get people to think, you know, think about your friends, think about your family and think about all the negative interactions. Think about all the times that people you know, who are close to you have lashed out. Uh, I know it's really easy and reflexive to think, well, you know, I just did something wrong or maybe they just don't like me. or They're just in a bad mood. And very rarely do we have enough people who are willing and, and you know, willing to take the time and think a little bit deeper and ask, well, what's going on in their lives? What happened today? Did something happen last week? Are they OK? And I just feel like that empathy is lacking with a lot of, you know, a lot of people just kind of either don't care or they don't get it. And it just, to me, felt like an exercise in empathy that I just, I had to get out of my system. Yeah, no, man, I, I agree. I think that um, it's, it's always, it's, it's nice to, it's a catch 22. It's nice to have a reminder of certain things because they do exist. And just because they don't affect you doesn't mean they're not out there, but also it's kind of horrific at the same time because no one really wants to think about the bad shit that happens out there. Um, Absolutely. And I'm someone too, who's never really cared about making people uncomfortable. You know, like if there, there's obviously always a time and a place, but at the end of the day, not talking about something because you're not comfortable talking about it. It just feels like an excuse at some point. Oh, absolutely. I feel like if you, if you can get comfortable, especially if you're passionate about it, like with, like with this, obviously uh, having those family situations and things you were passionate about the material, you have to kind of get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah, and um, yeah. So I guess what we can do now is, is kind of shift into uh, the three movies you wanted to talk about. And, and obviously I feel like this is going to be like intertwined with your career. So we'll probably bounce around some. Sure. Um, but those three movies are uh, The Thing from 1982. Uh, John Carpenter, you know, probably one of the best to ever do it. Yeah. Um, Green Room from 2015, directed by Jeremy Salnier, who I'm a big fan of, and uh, A Quiet Place. Now with the thing we did a going back to Halloween we did a um a 2 hour episode on on uh Carpenter because he's oh, just God. he's a genius yeah he's awesome I'm going to have to I didn't see that Yeah man it was yeah it, it was a lot of fun just going over his whole filmography and just kind of getting a scope because I feel like with Carpenter it's easy to kind of put him in a box but yeah. he actually has a lot to say in, in everything he does, even some of his, his lesser known films. What about this kind of, if you want to talk about what about it you love and how it kind of influences your work? Yeah, absolutely. So there are two things that it always, that, that always kind of stuck out to me about the thing. And the first one is just how isolated the location is. I absolutely adore the fact that the movie puts these characters in a situation and it drops them into an environment that they cannot escape from. You can't like look in a hundred miles in every direction and there is nothing but snow and ice. And I just feel like when you take away any kind of avenue of escape, no matter what the monster is or even what the context or the narrative is, you're really setting yourself up as a writer and a filmmaker to go on a pretty awesome adventure because then it really forces your characters, since there's no way out, how do we deal with the thing in the room? 
you know, and I, I've always been a huge fan of characters who are more active in, you know, from especially from early on in trying to deal with whatever problem they're presented with, rather than watching characters try and run away from things for, you know, 65 minutes before they decide, okay, I need to face this head on. Yeah, and I'll tell you for this particular scenario, because I think we're going to find because we kind of talked about this in Twitter chat a little bit. I think we're going to find the through line between these films is the isolation horror. Like, I feel like, yeah, that's, that's really what, what you enjoy about these types of movies. Big time. uh, And from what you're saying. Oh, 100%. And because to me, when you like, I feel like you don't really get a full read on who somebody is and what their character is like, what their morals are until you drop them in a situation that they have no escape from. Yeah. And, and to, to, to take that further, I'll say there is no one better to have in your corner than Kurt Russell in this movie. (laughs) Um, him, him and Keith David, God, they are two of my favorite leads. I feel like you can put this movie on at any point. It doesn't matter. And, and it's just, it's going to be fun to watch it. Um, and and that's another reason why I loved it too, is just when typically when you have a movie, that's like a monster in the house type movie and you have 10 characters or, you know, 10 plus characters, it can be really difficult to characterize them in a way that makes you care about each of them. And I feel like that movie the, the acting was just so strong from top to bottom that even though we don't really get a ton of time to spend with each character personally and learn really much of their backstories, you still find yourself caring about them. And I just feel like the acting and the direction was that strong that you just can't help but care. Yeah, and I feel like John Carpenter has this ability to make us feel this way and in, in scenarios where most likely like we shouldn't really care. But he has this ability to draw you in either what the way he directs his actors or the way he just maneuvers everything. It kind of puts you in a spot to where you can go from feeling sadness or, or obviously rooting for the characters to then being utterly terrified. Um, I, and that's why Halloween is such another favorite of mine because he, he does, he, he kind of treads those waters, uh, so easily and seamlessly. And, um, with the thing, it's especially, you know, frightening because they're literally fighting something that is there isn't is faceless. There is no there's no terror that we can just shoot the gun at. Obviously, there's things that it takes over that you can harm. But at the end of the day, it's kind of like this just this roaming terror that there's really no solution for. Absolutely. And the ambiguity of that is pretty much the second part of why I love that movie so much. And to me, that movie to this day is still the best example of body horror, like physical, practical body horror um, and, and, and practical effects. It's the best example of that I've ever seen. And I still think it's the best example of that to date in movie history. Oh, I agree. The practical effects on this, I wish studios would take note so they'd stop giving us this like garbage CGI that we're constantly getting. Um, I mean, the practical effects in this movie, and I'll even throw another one out, another favorite Carpenter of mine, uh, In the Mouth of Madness. Mm, That's yeah. another one with great practical effects. Like, And I could not imagine this movie. And, and, I, and I've heard that they are working on a remake that John Carpenter will be directly involved in, but it still doesn't mean that they're going to go practical. We have no idea what his level of involvement is. Um, I could not imagine this movie with CGI. Like, Absolutely. The spider head, like if it was CGI, like it would look like shit. I'm sorry. Like the practical effects in this movie are just God level. Yeah. And 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 it's one of those things where even good CGI, you can tell if it's CGI. 
And if you're someone like us who, you know, you, you watch a ton of movies, you, you try and do this professionally or you do do this professionally, a trained eye can pick out CGI pretty easily and pretty quickly. And for some people, it can kind of take you out of the story. And those practical effects are so ridiculously gory and they're so at times like almost over the top that I feel like if you tried to CGI it, it takes you completely out of the movie. Oh, yeah, 100 percent. It, it, it really there's this, um, you know, I, and, and actually, I can use an example because uh, I'm. Have you seen The Conjuring too? Yes, I can use this example because this example is one I always go to when it comes to horror movies that I like that had this massive misstep. There is a scene where they're staying at the the neighbor's house, and the dog is barking at something. Anyway, the crooked man shows up, mm-hmm. and it's just this giant CGI monstrosity like running down the hall, and. While it is, obviously, it's taking place at night, you're already on edge because the movie itself is scary, it still pulls you out of the film. It it kind of just jerks you out of, of this zone that you're in, that you're supposed to be in watching a movie like this. And, and that's really where my head always goes to, because if a director and a writer and these actors all do their best to kind of pull you into this world, and obviously you'll know this better than than a lot of people, because you're you. That's what you do. Like you, you want to pull people in. So to have it pulled out, kind of defeats the purpose. Absolutely, and and for that exact reason is also why I'm I'm not personally a huge fan of of jump scares. And I get that they always have their place in horror. And I'm not saying I don't like them. I absolutely, you know, I I do, but I just don't prefer to use them or like to use them mainly because it can really kind of break what you're trying to build with the atmosphere, especially since most jump scares don't really lead to anything. It's like all of this atmospheric buildup, it builds, it builds, and then jump scare, and then nothing else really happens. It's like the point of the scene was the jump scare. And to me, that nothing takes me out of a movie more than a jump scare that's just kind of there as a jump scare. It's not motivated or it's not, you know, there, there's not much of a reason for it to be there other than, you know, we haven't been scared for 10 minutes. It's just, it's one of those things where whether, you know, you're choosing between practical effects and CGI or to jump scare or not to jump scare. To me, it's it's just one of those things that to the trained eye, if you watch a lot of horror movies, it just, it pulls me out of it every once in a while, especially if it leads to nothing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I feel like I understand tropes are tropes for a reason. There's bad tropes, they're good tropes, that happens in film. But with horror movies these days, I feel like jump scares have become more or less a crutch for for directors to use to kind of remind the audience you're watching a scary movie. Yeah, and and it's interesting. This is something that I talk about all the time because a lot of my friends are horror writers, and and so we just nerd out about this. And jump scares are, as you can imagine, a pretty pretty polarizing topic with with all of us. But for the most part, it's just. It's, it's frustrating because I watched a movie the other day that I really, really enjoyed. Uh, I think it's The Dark and the Wicked. And the atmosphere was some of the best atmosphere I've watched in a really, really long time. And it did such a great job just building up all of these moments where we're ready to be jump scared. And so they present us with a jump scare, but then nothing else really happens after that. And the scene just kind of ends. And so a conversation that a lot of us have with each other is, you know, what can we do about that? How can we do that? And the thing that we keep coming back to is weaponizing those expectations that horror fans go into every movie expecting. So like if you're a horror fan and you're going into a movie and the opening sequence like Invisible Man, you know, they they present you with this scenario, okay, she needs to be quiet, she needs to get out and not make a lot of noise, you're expecting a jump scare. There's so much empty space, there's so much silence, and he, you know, he's able to weaponize our expectations against us. And even though there isn't really a jump scare in that scene, 
we're ready for one. And the fact that we're just constantly anticipating one, but never really getting it, it just builds and builds and builds. And without that release, it just builds to something that not a lot of movies are able to really, you know, emulate. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more, especially about the invisible man. I love the, uh, I love the opening scenes to that movie. Um, yeah, I agree, man. In terms of, in terms of jump scares, there's definitely a way to utilize them because don't get me wrong. I like jump scares. I just yeah. like them when they're done well. And and I haven't seen The Dark and the Wicked yet. I, I've seen the trailer for it. I was waiting for it to hit Shutter. I'm assuming it's on Shutter now. Yeah, um, it is fantastic. It's like it's a really really well done movie. And and jump scares aside, like it did frustrate me a little bit, but it's re- it's really really well done. And it's honestly hard to find any fault with it outside of that. And and honestly, that's really really nitpicky of me. <laughs> well, I I don't mean this to the movie. I don't mean it in like a derogatory way. But it but it looks like it's like a product of the a 24 type of frenzy of, of like the witch or hereditary or, or like movies like that. I just watched one the other day called Seder. That mm. was, it was very reminiscent of like a Robert Edgar's, uh, Ari Aster type of thing. And I don't think that I don't say that in a bad way because I like the products that these films are kind of helping pave the way for, because I think it's an interesting direction to take horror. I could be way off on that. I'll find out when I watch it, obviously. But that's kind of the feeling I got was this like kind of methodical, dark approach to horror. Yeah. And it's it kind of relies more on building an atmosphere than it does on, you know, any gore or what a lot of horror fanatics would look at from like 70s, 80s and 90s as like the typical horror movie kind of fanfare. And part of me really likes that. I mean, they're like The Lighthouse is a great example. Hereditary is one of my all time favorites. Same with Midsummer. And to me, it just feels like with movies like that that try to emulate like the, you know, the run on A24 type of atmospheric movies, it feels like to me, whenever a writer or or a director takes a swing and and whether they miss or not is always subjective. But from the way that I see it, if you miss trying to take a swing at something atmospheric, it's because it's just not really something that you are, you know, you, you intrinsically do. It's not something that you naturally and organically create. It's not how you approach the writing. And if you try and and twist everything so that it fits an atmospheric type of movie, when that's not the kind of movie that you write, it feels like it's just kind of becomes two different movies fighting and competing for supremacy over each other. And it kind of ends up being not super consistent or it doesn't fire on all cylinders. And at least to me personally, The Dark and the Wicked did way more things right than anything wrong. And honestly, the jump scares are really the only thing that I have to look at and went, I could have done things differently. But at the same time, I mean, you can look at every movie that's ever been made and think, oh, they could have done this differently. Oh, they could have done that differently. It's all subjective. But I, I think at the end of the day, it's a great movie to go watch and study for the, you know, at, at the bare minimum, just because the atmosphere that it works so hard to create is just, it's, it's some of the best atmosphere uh, uh, directing and, and horror movie stuff I've seen in a while. That's good to hear. I, uh, I'm looking forward to watching it now. I'll put it, I'll put it at the top of my list. Um, it's interesting to hear you kind of talk about building atmosphere and like kind of setting the table for, for the movie, because I feel like a lot of horror fans talk about how like, we don't really get that a lot. Like we get a lot of these micro budget, low effort movies that get churned out. And then like, you can find a gym on uh you know uh, vod kind of like the dark and the wicked but it's hard to find mainstream ones until like ari aster and robert edgars hit the scene and they started like kind of changing things but i mean to take it back to the thing this was made in 1982 and you'd be hard pressed to find a better atmosphere build than this 
I mean, oh my God, yeah. And the way that they're able to kind of lay out all of the information, when we learn it, how we learn it, and the fact that they don't give us every single step in the treasure map. I feel like they give us about five or six and they kind of leave the rest up to our imagination. And that is such a big swing that if you miss, you're not just missing and it's not just strike three, you're missing so hard you fall to the ground. But this movie just, you know, the, the bat makes such great contact with the ball and it's it's such a home run from every angle with, with that movie. And oh, I just, I, I'm so excited to, to talk about it. I'm so excited that that you said there's another one in development for because I, I did not know that there was another thing movie in development. Yeah, you know, because there was the one with uh, Joel Egerton back in like 2008 or something. Yeah. Um, that was like, what was that? A, was that a prequel to it? Yeah, I think um, that was a prequel, yeah. And yeah, I don't remember. I remember that one being underwhelming, but I mean, it's so hard to do anything that branches off of this property because I mean, you know, the thing is pretty much perfect. Like you're going to have to fight hard to find a flaw. Um, So in a bottle too, like, how do you replicate that? Oh yeah. No, not just that. How do you, how do you replicate every, like the effects are so great. The acting like you're not going to find a leading man as cool as Kurt Russell in 1982. Mm-hmm. It's impossible. Yep. Um, but yeah, there, there's allegedly a remake in the works. I don't know. I don't know if it's had any traction. This was pre COVID. So who knows? I know COVID killed a lot of projects. So, um, I mean, Hey, if it's out there, I will sign up for anything that is even closely related to the thing. <laughs> oh, me too. It could come out and the reviews could be like, this is the worst thing ever made. Don't go see it. And I'm going to be like, take my money. Cause I'm going to watch yep. it. I'm buying uh, 10 tickets and I'm going 10 times. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, now if you're ready, we can kind of move on to, uh, to green room, uh, from Jeremy yeah. Salnier. Um, so this, this movie, the thing I feel like everyone pretty much knows what it's about this movie. Maybe you haven't seen it. If you haven't go watch it after you've finished this episode, it's about a punk band, uh, who's performing at a, like basically a Nazi bar. Things, uh, go off the rails. And uh, I don't really want to give too much away. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about Green Room and what that means to you. Um, I know the isolated horror thing is a big one, but like what specifically about this movie kind of pulls you in? So, and, and this is kind of like a two-part answer. I was lucky enough, I was interning at the Sundance Film Festival in 2016 when it had its world premiere, and I got to go watch the world premiere. And I remember sitting in the theater and the first big scare and the first big horror moment, I've never seen a moment ever in my entire life register with an audience in such a visceral way before. I mean, you're you're talking about 200 people all at once just screaming at the top of their lungs. And it was unlike anything I've ever been a part of. And from that moment on, that movie just grabbed you by the neck and it didn't let you go. And to me, the, my, my favorite thing about it is the pacing is just so fast. It's such a strong and tight movie. And it, it, none of the scenes ever overstay their welcome. Um, nothing about that movie is contrived or, or anything. It's just, it feels like from start to finish, it knows exactly what it is. It knows exactly who the characters are. And it gives you every ounce of all of those things from the opening second until the absolute last second. Yeah, it's, it's 90 minutes of adrenaline. I mean, there's really, it's so, it's so fun, but at the same time, like going back to our conversation earlier, it's really uncomfortable. Like this movie does not want you to kind of settle in. It wants to keep you on the edge the entire time. Yeah. And that's something that I will never forget that feeling. 
I mean, from from the opening sequence, like it, it just not even that anything horror happens in the opening sequence, but you can just tell that, OK, this is something we have to strap in for. And it, it really sets you up for these little moments of just hyper terror, like almost Tarantino-esque gore. And I feel like the movie and Sonia really understands so well that those moments of gore really only work if you have and, and add a lot of context around them. And I feel like he works so hard to make you care about the characters. He works so hard to get you to understand their motivations and why they may or may not survive. And by the time shit really starts to hit the fan, you're just looking around going, oh my God. <laughs> and and what, once it starts, it just doesn't let up at all. And I just, I have so much respect for that kind of writing, that kind of movie that just, it doesn't ever stop. It doesn't let you breathe. And that's something that I, I try to take that feeling because I remember what it was like to feel that. And I want people to feel that whenever they read something I, I write or whenever they watch something that I, I direct. Well, man, it's it's so hard to keep that up. It is so hard to be able to put your your foot on the pedal and just not let up until the credits roll. I can't yeah. even imagine like the level of intensity that you've got to possess when you're making a film like this and, and when you're on the set. Um I mean, I feel like when he wrote it, it was like, okay, Nazis are terrifying, you know, neo-Nazis, being isolated, no one likes to think about that. But then you take it next level and you're like, you're not only isolated, but you're also trapped in basically like this basement um, in this punk rock band and it's in this punk rock club and you're fucked. Like, and then obviously (laughs) we don't want to spoil the twist, but some other shit happens and Patrick Stewart is fucking terrifying. He blew me away in that movie. I was I was beyond stunned when I saw that he was the antagonist in it. And when you first see him on screen, he just has this kind of gravitas about him that and I know he's Patrick Stewart and I know that he's just, you know, when you talk Patrick Stewart, you also got to talk gravitas, but he just he carried himself in a way that I just asked myself, how is he not played antagonist in every superhero movie ever? Yeah, no, I agree 100%. I, I thought that the first time I saw it, you have him show up, and it's like, of course he's got gravitas. It's, look who it is. But it's not just us feeling it. You can feel it from his, the people that basically work for him. Like they, they've all, You can tell that they have this established history of the weight that he carries. So when he shows up, everything changes. Everyone's mood changes. I mean, Macon Blair, who has been in, I think, two Sonier movies, maybe three, uh, as Gabe, like the way he the way he reacts completely changes when Patrick Stewart shows up, when they start talking about so matter of factly what they're going to do with with the people, what they're going to do, like with the van, all of this shit, everything changes. And that's something that, that's another aspect that I love and respect about that movie and why I think the writing is so strong is we don't really watch him personally do a lot of fucked up things. But like, you know, obviously there are some, you know, some things here and there, but the the fear that we get from his character, it's completely and almost completely derived from the way that people act around him and how different they are when he's not around. And when he is there, every, the air is just sucked out of the room and it feels like no one else other than him can breathe. And everyone's aware of that. But it just, it, to me, it's so brilliant because it allows yourself to just play around with so much more um, with setting and the characters. And because we don't have to see, you know, Patrick Stewart's character do a dozen fucked up things to know that he's a terrifying antagonist. We just have to see how the people who are close to him and know that he's not going to hurt them in the moment. And if they're that terrified of being around him, 
oh my God, it just, it allows your imagination to run wild. And, and I use this example and this metaphor a lot, but it's like, in regards to his character, you know, he gave us five steps of the treasure map and he left us to figure out the other five. And I feel like there's something more terrifying about that ambiguity and what he might've done before the movie even takes place versus what we would see him do and base our, you know, our reactions from him just solely off of that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I feel like, you know, we could all agree that neo-Nazis are scary pieces of shit, but like when, when you don't get the full picture and, and, and with Patrick Stewart, like you said, it's not a matter of I'm worried Patrick Stewart is going to like fuck me up. I'm worried about the fact that those guys will do whatever he tells them to do. That's the scary part about that character. Absolutely. And like the way they're so nonchalant about like the red laces. And like I said, I'm trying to not give anything away, but they're so nonchalant about doing certain things. And they're so matter of fact about um, what needs to happen. And obviously you've got your, your subplot involving one of the neo-Nazis. That's also like, you know, kind of sad, but at the same time, it's like, well, you are in this really fucked up life. So do I really need to feel bad for you? Like, so there's just so much shit going on in this movie. I remember the year it came out. It's so awesome. You got to see it at the premiere because I had to wait like everybody else. And I remember reading about this movie. This movie is great. It's the best horror movie of the year. It had, it builds atmosphere. It's like nothing you've ever seen. And I'm like, well, shit, I've got to watch it. There's no way it stands up to the hype. And when I did, oh, it stood up to the hype. I was like, holy shit. I am blown away. I'm telling you that first burst of of gore and horror I again there has never been I will this image and that memory will forever be burned into my mind because it's just the sounds and the feeling of 200 people cuz I screamed audibly too and that was the first time I'd ever audibly screamed and reacted to something like that in that kind of way in a movie theater before but once that happened it you kind of felt like a camaraderie almost in in the theater and it felt like okay it's going to be that kind of movie and then everyone strapped themselves in and from that point on it feels like every moment that he wanted to get an audience reaction from got an audience reaction and that to me is so difficult to do but if you're able to do it you really just hit some magic yeah, I mean, I feel like he kind of doubled down on his ability for atmospheric like suspense and world building because, I mean, I think Blue Ruin was a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And whenever he switches to this movie, because like, you know, Blue Ruin was made two years before and it's about like generational family feuding and shit. And you're thinking, well, how can that be terrifying and atmospheric? But it was and he knocked it out of the park. But then I feel like Green Room, he was just like, now I'm going to show you what else I can do. And I'm really going to to scare you. I'm I'm going to use real world things. There's nothing supernatural about this movie. And I'm still going to terrify you and uh, just give you something that, you know, obviously we've all seen movies like this before, but there was just something about this movie. And and I think it holds up. I've probably seen this movie five times. And it, it, every time I watch it, I'm blown away by how well it stands. 100%. And and a big reason of that, at least in my opinion, is the specificity, both as it relates to each character and the setting that the characters find themselves in. I mean, all of the details of the world are so well fleshed out. They all work perfectly with each other. They feed off of each other, you know, the characters in the setting. And it, it's like, even though we don't learn a ton about each character's backdrop or, or background, much like with The Thing, and even though the acting in this is phenomenal, I feel like a lot of the, the reasons we care about these characters is because 
we just we we feel like we know a lot about them, even though we're not told that much about them. And to me, the the details of the characters, the details of their personalities, the details of the antagonist personalities, including Patrick Stewart, the details of the location. It's just they all work so well together. And I think that there's definitely a version of this movie that is less specific uh, as it relates to the characters and the setting. And I just I don't think it works as well without that specificity. Now, I have to ask, since you're a director, like, do you ever watch like a movie like this? And 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 I and I know that with this, you pull inspiration from this isolated horror and and just horror in general. But there's a lot of horror movies out there. Is it pretty often that you watch a movie and you're like, well, I would have done that differently because that didn't really work? Constantly. And and, Constantly. I, 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 and it's so in a way, yes, but the second part of it, kind of no. I like I don't I tend to I used to look at movies and say, oh, that doesn't work. Oh, that doesn't work well. But as I've kind of developed and, and the more people I've talked to, the more I realize that that doesn't really help me grow. It doesn't it, it just kind of provides nothing to anybody. And so what I try to do and think about when I find myself watching a movie and I get taken out of it for some reason or anything else like that, I just I, I take a step back and I go, OK, this didn't work for me. Why didn't it work for me? And then I'll even sit with the movie pause for like 10 or 15 minutes and just jot down in a notebook. OK, what are the reasons why this might not have worked? for me. And my girlfriend is just perpetually annoyed at me because I do this all the time. And, but it's, it's one of those things that I feel like has really helped my development as a, as a writer and director, because it's, it's not enough to just look at a movie and go, ah, well, this didn't work. Ah, well, that didn't work. I didn't really like that. I would have done it differently. It's like, well, why didn't it work? What specifically would you have done differently? And I think that the deeper you dive into that stuff, the more questions you ask, you know, to follow up to the, why didn't I like it? Or why didn't it work? I think that that's really, really where you find a lot of the golden nuggets that kind of help form who you are as a filmmaker. Well, I can definitely relate to uh, to the thing about your girlfriend. My wife uh, <laughs> gets so annoyed if I'm talking about either why they choose that camera angle, uh, why are we getting all of this, um, the, what's happening. We're just getting so much sp- basically spilled out to us. Uh, it's like, why was it written this way, et cetera, et cetera. She's like, well, let's just watch the movie and who cares? Um, <laughs> and this is something but, um, that talks to me about all the time too, about like every script, every movie, it's just all a series of choices that a director made, a studio made, a writer made. And at some point it's like, there are a bunch of different versions of it, but you know, are any of these different versions better? Are they worse? Who knows? But it, it, it's almost like, to really mine what you can from all of that, just kind of ask yourself, you know, what, you know, why did they make this decision? And if, to me, if you're watching a movie and you start to ask yourself that, like the biggest goal for a director, I feel like is to make a series of decisions that nobody really questions, which is impossibly difficult to do. And it's one of the reasons why directing is so hard, but you know, how, how do you do that? I I don't have an answer for that, but (laughs) it's, it's one of those directing things, I guess that I'm, you know, I'm trying to figure out now and, I try to learn from and, and pinpoint what I perceive to be other people's mistakes or poor decisions, which again, you know, I, who am I? It's all subjective, but yeah, that's just, that's one of the things I like to look at and learn from. Well, you know, I'm such a big fan of, of like your old school, like Alfred Hitchcock, Hitchcock said that your first three, like, like he, he would require like at a film school, like your first three shorts be silent, like no dialogue. Hmm. And like Sidney Lumet's book on directing, uh, uh, Dave Mamet. Like I love reading about the craft because it's like, like you said, like you're trying to do something where no one will have a reason to question your decision. And it's, it's, and I feel like the reason it's so hard is because like the nature of all of this is so subjective. 
And what's good to me and you might be hated by someone else. You know, something that I like, you might look at and go, oh, that's terrible. And something that I think is terrible, you might look at and go, oh, that's one of my favorite things ever made. And so I feel like just the fact that there's so much subjectivity infused in every decision we make, you know, critically, you know, a critic can look at a movie and say, it's one of the most well-directed films I've ever watched. And then a random audience member can look at it and go, oh, this is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Who the hell directed this? I love that because like I always tell this to my co-host Jacob whenever we have a, a recommendation to one of us and we watch it and, and the other one hated it and the other one loved it um, or with your random audience member. That's the beauty of art. I feel like that's why I love cinema and I've always been drawn to it because you can watch something and basically have like a fucking epiphany about something that you just watched either in your life or in the film or something and someone else watch it and be like, nah, that's garbage. <laughs> and it's like, on the one hand, that really sucks. But on the other hand, it's like, well, I love that, actually. Like, there's something so endearing about that aspect of it. And, and I feel like learning how to be comfortable in that ambiguity and understanding that no matter what decision you make, some people are going to love it, others are going to hate it. So just be confident in whatever decision you make. I feel like that's the most difficult lesson to learn as a writer and a director. And as long as you can remain consistent in your characters and the visual story that you're trying to tell as it relates to the, the narrative story that you're telling then less people, you know, there's less room for misinterpretation for people to look at and go, well, I didn't really get it, or I didn't really understand what they were going for. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's it's all a crapshoot at the end of the day. I mean, the old adage of no one really knows what they're doing or no one really knows what they're talking about is pretty true. I mean, you know, every critics are going to vary on their reactions to things and audience members are going to vary on their reactions to things. And that's okay. It's, it's okay to try and find comfort in that. And I think that if you're able to find comfort in that, that's part of how you're able to kind of untether yourself from those expectations that are floating around there. Well, I'll tell you, there is nothing that uh, surprised me more than the next movie we're going to talk about, going back to everything we've just discussed about this art form and directing, uh, is that John Krasinski could do what he did with A Quiet Place. Um, <laughs> no, no offense to Krasinski. He's very talented. You know, I think I've seen the other movie he directed. Um, like I knew he was talented, but I did not know that he was capable of, of building such atmosphere. Um, but, uh, a quiet place, uh, guys, most of you probably already seen it. it's pretty popular. It's basically a post-apocalyptic world and a family is living in silence because monsters can hear everything. So what about this movie uh, made you pick it? Like, what about it do you love and, and, and kind of inspires you and in what you do? Yeah. So this movie for me is like my Bible. This movie changed everything for me. The script changed how I read scripts. It changed how I write scripts. It changed my perception of what a script even is. It told me that, oh, all the things I've been told I can't do, I can do as long as they work. Oh my God. It, it feels like it, it shattered so many you know, fake barriers that were just kind of put up from a lot of the different craft books I've read or advice I've gotten from different people. And it just told me that if you do, you can do anything you want as long as you do it well, or as long as it works. And for me, it's just, it, it's the perfect metaphor for the breakdown of communication in a family. And I think that aside from it being a great movie without the themes attached to it, it's just on every level, it just feels like everything is there for a very specific reason. And everything that the movie sets out to accomplish, not only does it accomplish, but it does it times a million. And I just, I, I've never had an experience in a theater before where I was just sitting down and from start to finish, my, my mouth was just hanging open the whole time. And I was like, oh my God, there's like no dialogue in this. How was that possible? And I, I'd always thought that 
dialogue is it obviously it's a huge part of every movie but i always thought that you just you have to have it and seeing that you don't have to have it kind of opened up me to the perspective of well maybe this scene doesn't have to end in a line of dialogue maybe it can just end with a look that a character gives another character in response to a line of dialogue or you know is there a way for me to write this scene where there isn't any dialogue and it's just it's allowed me to take a step back and and try and drive down a new road that i didn't know existed before and it's it's really just opened my eyes to that. Yeah. I mean, typically speaking, when, when I watch a movie like this and it was a fun movie and I enjoyed it and I was so surprised if I heard the director say later that, yeah, I just wanted to make a movie about family. I'd be like, well, come on, that's you're fucking reaching. I don't really get that. But with this movie, no, it's a hundred percent. The monsters are the, the subplot almost to this family just surviving. And obviously, like you said, there's so much you can pull from it with a breakdown of communication and, 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 and relating to each other. And, and, and I love those aspects. And that's why this movie was so unexpected because I think, you know, any guy with money and Hollywood influence and, and can get the right people on board, they can make a horror movie. I, we see that every week almost. There's a new horror movie on VOD or whatever. But I think with this movie, he really showed he has something specific in mind and something special. Absolutely. And it's like, to, to me, it's also the simplicity about it all. Like the fact that the plot is relatively simple and that's absolutely not a bad thing. I say that, you know, as the, the highest compliment I can give because the more simple the rules of the world are, like, for example, make a sound, you die. It's, it, it allows us as an audience to kind of sit back and, and just view whatever it is you're giving to us. It's like you're taking out a lot of the, the critical thinking and you're forcing us to just be there in the moment and not think about why or, or really think at all. And that to me was just another reason why it's, it, it just, it hits so, so deeply for me. And I know this movie has three writers on it. One of them being John Krasinski. I don't know who to give the credit to, but whoever decided to make her pregnant, um, it was a fucking genius move yeah. because the amount of shit that they had to plan for and how they kind of addressed all of it. Um, it, it was, man, that scene in the bathtub, it's, it's pretty, it's like terrifying, but it's so it's so well done with the way they did that. Yeah, I, I just it like to me, I, I keep thinking about that. And whenever I'm thinking about conceptualizing a new idea for a movie, I always go back to A Quiet Place and I ask myself, OK, what's the backdrop? And if the backdrop is something like A Quiet Place where, you know, if you make a sound, you die. Well, the, the brilliance in the whole character work, the, the plot and just everything else about the movie is that they present the characters with a situation where how the hell are you supposed to be quiet giving birth? How are you supposed to keep an infant quiet? And it's like you, you, you present these characters in a world where they cannot make a noise and you force them into, into a situation where how do you not make noise? And it's, it's so simplistic and it's so beautiful and it's just executed so well. It's like, to me, it's such a great approach to you know trying to write a movie or come up with another idea for a movie what's the backdrop and how can i put my characters in a situation where they are forced to deal with the ramifications and fallout of not being able to adhere to the rules of the world i think that's a good way to put it i feel like uh now that you framed it like that i can picture the writing room they're sitting around a table and they're like hey guys what's like what are some crazy things that can happen 
that you want it, like you have to make noise, but you're put in a situation where you can't. And somebody's like, oh, you step on a nail. It's like, oh, yeah, you'd fucking scream. Of course, that'd be terrible. Then it's like, well, what if we make the wife pregnant before the apocalypse happens? And then she has to give birth with these monsters around. And somebody's like, that's genius. I feel like that's basically what happened in the writer's room because there's yeah. really no other way to explain it. Yeah, um, it, it's it's brilliant. And I feel like the more simple you make things for yourself, the writer, it's just you, you're leaving more room for yourself to do cool shit. And I feel like it's a really simplistic view to to this. And I'm sure that there are many more intricacies that I'm not privy to or I'm not aware of. But to me, the more simple you can keep things, not only for yourself, but for your viewers or your readers, there's just you're leaving yourself with more room for them to look into things. You're leaving more room for them to kind of make more assertions or view it differently. And I feel like that's a good thing. Well, I mean, I, I do understand everyone has different ways of approaching things, so I don't want to put anyone in a box. But I mean, I personally, I, I'm way leaning towards what you're saying and agreeing with anything I write or anything I do. I'm always looking for ways to keep it simple. The more you keep it simple, the more you can focus on what's actually happening. Like yeah. the more layers you add to it, the more threads there are to follow. And it just it can really blow up in your face. And, and I think that them handling this movie and this material the way they did is really what kept it from blowing up in their face. Absolutely. And I feel like too, the less characters you have and the less subplots you have, you're really forcing us as a viewer or a reader to spend more time with your character. And whether it's one character, two, three, four, or, you know, 10, if there's nothing else really going on and you're forcing us to spend a lot of time with them, it almost doesn't even matter if they're likable or not. When you spend a lot of time with somebody, you end up form, you know, formulating a pretty strong opinion on them, positive or negative. And to me, as a writer, if people respond, you know, overwhelmingly negatively or positively to a character, hey, at least you felt something. That's a win in my book. And so, keeping it simple, keeping you know the the plot with only a couple of characters, it really allows us to go on every single twist and turn of that journey that they go on with them. And it kind of forces us to really look at their relationship in a way that I feel like we wouldn't have if there were two other subplots and they all ended up coming together at the end or something like that. Like there are a lot of different ways this movie probably could have gotten written or been made where it doesn't have the same emotional impact that this version has. No, absolutely. There's a time and a place for like three or four subplots and characters intertwining and all of that. This just wasn't that time or the place. And I'm glad that they kind of avoided that temptation and, you know, call me cynical, but I feel like I haven't seen it yet, obviously, but I feel like the sequel is going to fuck all that up. Um, I, I feel like they're going to introduce too many characters. They're going to try to explain more shit. The studio saw dollar signs. I know a quiet place made a ton of money. Normally speaking, I'm not the biggest sequel fan, especially to movies like this, where you can tell like they're not going to convince me they wanted this to turn into a series like a, a trilogy or whatever. Like they made this movie, they put it out. It surprised them. I'm making a ton of money. Like I just I, I I'm it'd be hard pressed to make me believe the studio thought that they were going to be able to make a sequel. Uh, how do you how do you feel about the sequel? Do you have any expectations for it or I mean, I I'm going to try to go into it, not. You know, because because like I said, because the, the original movie for me is like it it is my a number one. There is nothing else above it. I just I love absolutely everything about that movie, and so I'm going to try to go into it without those kinds of expectations because that's just wholly unfair to everybody that was associated with that with that movie to hold it to that kind of standard. Oh but, yeah, no, I'm a hundred percent in the wrong with it. <laughs> I just I can't help but thinking that. But yeah, no, I agree. I I hate when 
when people are negative about about art because no disrespect to anybody that worked on that movie i just uh god man it's just, i hate studios sometimes That's <laughs> where it comes from <laughs> but I, I totally see where you're coming from though and and like i have the same amount of skepticism to be honest because i mean at the end of the day it is a sequel and when they you know when scott beck and brian woods when they wrote the original i i could be wrong but i vaguely remember that you know it was just written as a one-off they didn't really have any intention of it becoming a a franchise or anything like that, but it was just written so well and it made so much money. If you're a studio boss, how can you not green light a sequel for that? You know, but I, I feel like this is this could be one of those rare sequels that could end up really building off of the the strong foundation that the original left us. And I'm interested to see what decisions they decided to make with it. Um, but until I see it, I don't know. I'm trying to withhold uh, too many of my opinions on it, but. I am very, very excited, and I am sitting here in giddy anticipation waiting for the second one to come out. Well, maybe you've convinced me to upgrade to, like, cautiously <laughs> optimistic. Um, so so we will see. I am excited. I love the trailer. I thought it was great, and I think Emily Blunt's fantastic. So oh, yeah, she there's does. Yeah, there's really just me being cynical to blame and really nothing about the film. Same director. Obviously, mostly the same cast. I mean, Killian Murphy's fantastic. So um, maybe maybe I will shift and start trending towards being more positive about it. Um, but hey, I mean, just- honestly, at the end of the day, like your, your, your cynicism isn't exactly misplaced. I mean, I, I don't really think that it's makes a lot of sense for us to think that studios have like the, the art in mind or have, you know, what is the best version of this story artistically no, they, they want to make money. At the end of the day, they're a business and they're about making money. And so obviously, where's the motivation? You know, who was really behind the scenes kind of pulling all the strings or making all the decisions? We don't know. And I don't think anyone's really going to know until we see it, until it comes out and until we have some time to kind of sit with it and and, and all that stuff. But I mean, at, at the end of the day, I've, I'm right there with you for the most part. Like if this was not a sequel to A Quiet Place, it was just a sequel to something else, then I'm probably approaching it with the same amount of cynicism at your, as you're approaching this one with. Well, before we wrap up, I feel like if we keep on the studio talk trend, where 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 do you see yourself working within the studio confines? Are you wanting to make a feature? Are you working on a new short? Like what do you got cooking right now? So right now I have a zombie script that is definitely influenced by A Quiet Place. Uh, It's called Blood Sugar. And my manager is currently out with that one right now. Um, It's a sub $5 million horror feature, post-apocalyptic and, you know, six characters, two locations basically. And so you can see where the influence comes from, but that's what's um, right in front of me right now. Uh, I've got, I'm working on another feature right now that I'm hoping I can direct at some point in the next couple of years, but I don't know. I mean, I, my goal isn't to really like, obviously if a studio comes calling one day, I'm not going to hang up the phone. I'm not going to send it to voicemail or anything like that, but I love the indie route mainly because I, over the course of the last few years, I've had the, the privilege to be able to write and direct 13 short films and having that kind of creative control, it kind of like not having that overhang is something that I don't know that I'm going to want to give up. Not because I think that I know better, not because I think that it's necessarily a bad thing, but just having the freedom to know that I can make a decision that I won't, you know, about the movie that I wrote and I'm directing that doesn't have to be run by a series of studio executives first. That's much more appealing to me than, you know, trying to write for someone else. I feel like as long as I'm able to hold on to my vision and I'm able to stay true to that without really having to deviate um, to make it more marketable or anything else like that. Um, that's where I see myself. I, you know, I look up to people like 
Tarantino and M. Night Shyamalan, who are able to write and produce a lot of their own stuff and, and produce other people's works. Someone like Scorsese, who's always looking to produce a lot of indie work. Um, I, I would love to get to a point in my career where I can write and direct my own work, um, raise some money and help produce the works of other people. And hopefully I can get there one day. But uh, right now I'm still trying to find, uh, find my foothold into the room where all of this fun stuff takes place. Well, don't get me wrong. It's easy for me to step behind the mic and be judgmental. But if a studio was like, hey, we'll give you $10 million to make Ant-Man 12, I'd be like, well, fuck yeah, I'll do it. I mean, um, hey, at the end of the day, every, everyone's got a price. And, and honestly, I'd be even even if I were to ever establish myself as any kind of name recogn- you know, that has recognition or anything like that, I, I it, it's going to be a long conversation. And I don't know. I definitely see a scenario where if someone comes calling and if, if the time is right, if things, you know, line up, then sure. But I don't know. I just, obviously things can change. I'm still only 26. So I've got a lot to learn about myself. I still have a lot to learn about the industry and I'm sure the industry is going to have a lot to learn about me too. And you know what? Maybe the studio system looks at me and they're like, no, thank you. And if that happens, then you know what? I sit <laughs> my shoulders and I keep, uh, I keep doing my thing until I stop. Hey man, that's what it's all about. I mean, the, the studio systems are so uh, fucked up for lack of a better way to phrase that. I mean, with, with how they do things. I mean, as long as you can keep making your art and putting your thing out, that's really all that matters, man. Um, Absolutely. And and to me, like that, that feels like that's what art is supposed to be anyway. It's supposed to be whatever your unfiltered version of yourself and, and how you view whatever emotion it is you're trying to get out by, you know, creating this form of art. But then once you infuse it with suits and, and money and all of these other kinds of external factors, it really does kind of muddy the waters a little bit. And I don't want to say it dilutes things, but it definitely has the potential to dilute things. Well, for future reference, if you ever want to make a feature about the toast toaster movie, I'm there. Um, so one day, one day, but I have to ask about the zombies. Uh, Cause I'm, I, I have to know, are they going to be fast or slow? They are very fast and they are actually fungus driven zombies. And so they can't see very well. And so much like a quiet place, they are driven a lot by sound. Oh, fuck. Yeah, that sounds awesome. OK, I, I, I try to take like bits and pieces of a quiet place. The Last of Us uh, you know, Train to Busan, um, all, like all, all of the, the, the great you know, horror movies recently and otherwise, like I, I try to look at elements of those that I like, what worked, what didn't work, and then try and distill all of the things that I liked into one crazy, ridiculous thing, I guess. Well, that sounds awesome, man. And good luck. I hope that I uh, hope that turns into something for you. Um, do you have anything else to add about these three movies? You feel like we covered them pretty well? Yeah, I feel like we did. I mean, honestly, I could beat this dead horse into the ground for the rest of my life. So <laughs> same here. Sometimes I'm just I just tell myself, OK, well, they probably don't want to hear about the thing being the greatest movie ever made for the hundredth time. Uh, so, OK, well, cool, man. Sam, thanks a lot for coming on. Really appreciate it. Um, Jacob, you were not missed. This went great without you. So uh, well, I, I miss not being able to talk to you, Jacob. But uh, yeah, Sam, you're welcome back anytime. Good luck with your career, man. I hope things go great for you guys. Check out his Vimeo account. Check out those shorts. You will not be disappointed. And um, Sam, be sure you don't have anything else to plug, anything else going on? Uh, you know, I, I am just always so profoundly awkward when, when talking about myself, and it's something I'm trying to get better at. <laughs> no, I feel that. No, that's that's 100%. Uh, I'm on board with that. So, I, I okay. Really well, you having me on. I mean, th- this has been an absolute pleasure. 
Yeah, man. Thank you for coming on. It's been a pleasure for me as well. And I'm sure the listeners are going to enjoy it. Guys, check them out on Twitter. Check them out on Vimeo. All that will be in the show notes. And Sam, good luck to you. And thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, thanks for having me.